I'll do I'll, yeah. next week. I'll do the intros. Daniel Day Lewis in there. Oh, that'd be board. great. And then we can we can skip oh, our we intro did, yeah, and use yeah, the Brahms Violin Concerto. <laughs> <laughs> Yum! Da, 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 dum. And then we can beat Michael to death with a bowling pin. <laughs> Oh, I have to (laughs) (laughs) say you're up this quick. Yeah, it just sounded good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Adagio for Things. Welcome to today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking with Gemma Peacock, a New York-based composer originally from New Zealand. Don't hold that against her. And we're going to be talking about orchestras performing live film scores to picture. And and that's what that's going to be. Enjoy the show. Enjoy... Enjoy this shit show. Stay tuned. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Gemma Peacock, a composer originally from New Zealand who was tearing it up in the music world. Her piece Waves Plus Lines has been popping up all over the country and even had its Australian premiere in April of this year. Her ability to seamlessly blend acoustic instruments with electronics is striking, and across her portfolio of music, you get a very strong sense of personality and honesty. In addition to her growing career as a composer, she's also one of the co-founders of the composer collective Kinds of Kings. Steubenville, are you there? Hi, yes. <laughs> Hi. I know, I know. It's oh oh my god, wait, does it really show that up when I call? Yeah. It says Steubenville, Ohio. Ooh, yeah. I need to you need change a new SIM card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you? Finishing up I'm good. I'm good. Just tired, so I'm downing this coffee. Nice. I'm downing rosé. That's great. We're kind of, you know, I'll be super hyper and you'll be super relaxed. I think it's perfect. What is this podcast? What are we doing? What are we... (laughs) What's going on? Uh, So this is is a podcast. Do you remember, by chance, the uh, Dirges for Democracy concert we did a a while ago? Yeah. It's like two years ago. Mm -hmm. It's the same group we just were focusing more on the podcast and then maybe one at one point get back into doing live things but this is something that we were talking about for a bit and really wanted to put all the energy into doing so this is actually going to be episode two so it's you know fairly new that's cool i feel very Uh, privileged oh yes we are very we are very excited to have you (laughs) but i do need to start out with the most important question i'm thinking Mm. Just get out of the way. How is your little fur baby dog? Um, she is locked outside the door right now because uh, right before you called, she started barking. Um, but oh, other no. than that, she's the best. She's <laughs> really mental. She's half human and half cat because she kind of pounces on things. But then Ooh. all she wants to do is just sit on you and cuddle. And she's slightly too big. She's all like <laughs> limbs and <laughs> not a lot of body. dogs. Never know. They have no sense of self awareness. Which, well, actually, that's true. I think all personal uh, space. But I have two two cats, and I feel like they're kind of like half cats, half dogs. But they were, you know, they were found together in Brooklyn, so they're Brooklyn little Brooklyn babies. Oh, Mila was found in Korea and flew into Williamsburg. <laughs> that is amazing. I, I was reading about that on Facebook. So, so how did this happen? The dog. 
was uh, in Korea. I think that she was abandoned. But this um, charity brings over dogs by just like finding Korean business people and attaching the dogs to their <laughs> tickets. And then they just turn oh. up in Brooklyn and they're all jet lagged and weird. And um, yeah. That's pretty amazing, though, that they have that the resources, you know, to fly the pets over. Yeah, I think that um, rescue dogs are not so popular there. Secondhand mm-hmm. dogs, because they kind of come with these, you know, emotional issues. But um, mm-hmm. they're they're very sweet, and they just want to be with you all the time. Oh, like the rescue dogs. Rescue dogs, and yeah, especially with composers, since we're at home so much, then they're great yeah. for that. <laughs> great dog lifestyle. It's perfect. Yeah. So, speaking of traveling, you just got back from Chicago. I did. I loved on, what, it. Wait, on Monday? On Monday, yeah, really early. But Chicago I, I, was great. That yeah, what did you what did you think? I lived there for a few years before I moved this to uh, New York, and I loved it, you, especially during the summertime. Even though it's it's yeah. getting into fall, what did you what did you think? Well, I loved that it's right on the water, because you know I'm from New Zealand, and you're never that far from the water. But I feel a bit claustrophobic mm-hmm. here. Yeah, I love that lake, and then that there's space where you can see all the architecture. And I was there for a concert with Noise Saxophone Quartet and F Plus, and they did this joint concert at um, Constellation. Like this whole community of supportive new music people came out, which, you know, after living in New York for four years and now out here, it was really, really nice to have like people who are just, yeah, supportive. And Well, that's great. I, it, it's a great town. I, I did enjoy, enjoy it a lot. There's a very big comedy scene there as well and i i had knew some musicians but i feel like a vast majority of my friends were like sketch comedians and improv people and the community there is so supportive of each other so i can only imagine what it would was like with for musicians that's where second city is right is that what it's called yeah second city and improv olympics yeah it doesn't kinda, surprise me that you were friends with comedians well it just kind of yeah it kind of happened that way <laughs> it was interesting being at a party with a group of improv people because you never know what you're going to get, literally. Uh, I know. They're even weirder than us. And I'm I'm pretty, pretty weird. So Now, that piece, that was Dwom? Yeah. That's the you piece said that, it right. Oh, did I? Yes. And I even looked up the definition. And, oh, you're amazing. Uh, I was like, and I did some research. Uh, so I was, it, it's a fainting spell or sudden attack of illness, according to the internet. And I definitely, I was, you know, giving it a listen and it's a very great piece. I really much enjoyed it. Yeah. So I wrote this piece for Noise because we got paired up together for the 8th Blackbird Creative Lab last, well, this most recent summer. And I had this Skype call with them. Um, I hadn't met them before. And they're four pretty young guys who are all in Evanston. Three of them have just completed studying at Northwestern and Brandon, the soprano player, is um, doing his doctorate now. And when I spoke to them on the phone, they told me the kind of music that they like playing and and what they really specialize in. And I looked up a bunch of their recordings and it was all kind of this really cerebral, incredibly complicated stuff. They they do a really beautiful job of playing Xenarchus and all this... um, Modern stuff that's really different to what I do. And mm. I thought, oh, my God, someone at Eighth Blackbird's playing a joke on us because they're going to hate my music. And I'd never written a saxophone quartet before. Like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But 
during this whole time when I was thinking about what to write for them and, and how to give them something that was interesting while being true to my myself, my sister mm-hmm. got really sick. It was a really, really rough time where I was talking to her on the phone a lot late into the night because, of course, the time difference. It wasn't kind of clear at the time whether she was going to make it and I was sort of considering going back home and, and whether I would have to take a leave of absence from university and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I came across this old Scottish word, dwalm, because I've been doing all this, um, like, research on ancient magic and spells and things, and I'm, I'm writing a bunch of songs at the moment in Irish language. Um, so I was looking oh, at wow. the various Gaelic languages and, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, somehow stumbled across dwalm, and I thought, you know, with its two meanings, they're kind of related, like, to fall into a reverie which is this really nice kind of light thing. And the other one is to become sick or to lose consciousness, which is, you know, this really heavy darkness. To me, it just kind of, it was a really interesting way of thinking about departing, departing this world. And somehow it all came together in this kind of amalgam. Some people, you know, found it really moving without me explaining the background of it um mm-hmm. but I talked a bit before the performance um to the audience about you know my inspiration for the piece and I forgot to say that my sister's fine she's she's good now oh, and good. so I had a bunch of people come up to me afterwards like, how is your sister <laughs> um, yeah a lot of times you hear the stories about people writing pieces especially in uh times like that where it's just a lot of emotional pressure that's great that everything you know was okay and then also that you had an outlet to kind of feel your way out you know I couldn't keep it out of my music if I had tried with the kind of music that you write and the kind of music that I write you know for for me writing music is about expression expressing the ineffable which is the emotional um landscape of our lives and it's not so much for me you know to prove that I'm smart and, uh, you know, can like turn maths into music. Do you feel that when you write, it's driven by very, what you're kind of feeling at that moment, or it's, it's a very internal experience, or is it something that happens when it happens and that's not always the guiding force uh, behind your composition? For the last couple of years, it's definitely been just what I've been obsessed with in terms of like social things or you know, this this past year it's been more personal because of stuff that was happening in my life. But um, I've written a lot about feminism and just this deep well of rage that has become more visible with the Me Too movement. And I have to, when I write music, like it, I'm trying to communicate um, and... I'm trying to communicate either something that I'm reading a lot about or talking to people a lot about, or in the case of Dwam, something that's incredibly so emotionally overwhelming that it has mm-hmm. to come out some way, but still still in a way that is communicating to an audience because for me, music is something that we share with each other and I'm not really interested in, you know, that really introspective stuff that is... Um, you thinking about yourself and and then just kind mm. of laying it out there without considering the people who are going to receive what you've put out in the world. Does that mm. make sense? 
No, it does. Very well said, I think. Uh, and I, I feel like I get that introspective sense from Waves Plus Lines. It's Waves time to talk lines. about that. Yeah. That is blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I I know, I you know, I've read the notes and I've, I've heard you mention it before, but what, how did you come across the text and what was the initial inspiration for, for writing it? So Waves and Lines is a song cycle that I wrote. Um, I started it as my master's thesis project when I was studying with Julia Wolfe at NYU. It came about because I read this book of poetry by Eliza Griswold, who's this amazing writer. She writes for the New York Times and the New Yorker a lot, and she's just written a book about fracking in the States. Uh, She was sent by the New York Times magazine to Afghanistan after the story came out that a young woman in a rural area of Afghanistan had self-immolated and she was sent there to kind of investigate what had happened because there was some connection that this young woman had been writing poetry and it turned out there's a form of folk poetry in Afghanistan that is almost exclusively a female form and it is spoken and sung so women sing them to each other they sort of have a rhyming quality in the original language and they some of them are really funny and some of them are really bawdy and they're about things like sex and love but they're also about war and grief and anger mm-hmm. so Eliza went to Afghanistan with a photographer and found the family of this young woman they insisted that she had slipped with, you know, an oil lamp and it was an all, all an accident. But gradually she managed to piece together that this young woman had been writing poems, which is kind of, it's taboo for women in Afghanistan. Um, and she had been sharing them. There's a radio station in Kabul where women can ring in and share them with each other. Um, and her, I think, uncles or brothers found them and beat her because, you know, it's so dishonorable. And so she was so humiliated by this beating and felt so trapped by her life as a woman where, you know, your life is completely constrained. You don't leave the house. You don't get an education. You basically are raised to cook and clean for your husband and raise children that she committed suicide by lighting herself on fire. This is not actually an uncommon thing that happens to women in Afghanistan. And so Eliza travelled around the country after she'd found this family and uh, she went into refugee camps and into women's groups and literary groups, collecting as many land days as she could. Then um, when she got back to New York, she translated them into um, English poetry, you know, from the very little literal translations. She made these mm-hmm. beautiful and heartbreaking and really and sometimes really funny, um, really sexy poems. And uh, I just thought, I mean, this would be amazing if I could set some of these to music. I just emailed Eliza Griswold out of the blue and she was generous enough to say, yeah, go for it. So I chose my four favourite and wrote four songs. I was really nervous about finding a singer, but um, I'd been to Bang on a Can the previous year, the Summer Festival, and met Eliza Bag, 
And she's this phenomenal singer and she's got this powerful kind of not straight tone but, you know, almost straight tone sound and colour that she can create and an enormous range from an alto right up into a high soprano range. The following year I got a commission from Roulette through the Jerome Foundation to write the rest of the song cycle to make it into an evening-length work. We created this kind of semi-staged version of the song cycle which has been performed in New York and in Melbourne and next week we're actually going to start recording the album which is going to come out on New Amsterdam in November. Oh that's great. I can't. I'm. I, I saw that was going to happen. I'm really bummed that I couldn't make any of the the live shows. I'm really excited to hear the album when it comes out. Yeah, I'm. I'm really yeah. hoping that we get to do an album launch um, in the area, so maybe we can actually see each other in person soon. I know it's been too long. <laughs> well, I don't and you're just across the river. You're just across the river. <laughs> when did I last see you? Oh God, I think it was. Um, I always remember Hot Pot. Because hot pot was like, <laughs> that was my first hot pot experience. But I, I know it was after that. I just can't remember. It's true. For some reason, that's what's in my mind. Because just like, of Susanna Hancock, who's part of my composer collective. She's a, a hot pot aficionado. I just was like, <laughs> how have I not been to a place where you just get plates of meat <laughs> and you cook it at the table and eat as much as you can in a set amount. That's right. My, um, my best friend lives in uh, Chengdu in China, and we went there for a couple of days, um, and she took me out for hot pot. And I'm vegetarian, so I, I got away with it okay, but my husband, George, was given the choice between spinal cord or a block of blood. So you, you can just throw anything <gasps> in there. Wow. And they do. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I like to think that I would be adventurous enough to try stuff. <laughs> I think he went in the spinal cord in the end. That Did he like it? Uh, I think it's one of those textural things. But he was just thinking, uh, yeah. you know, like, which is going to have a lower risk of, like, giving me some kind of horrendous yeah. life-ending bacteria yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think. I think I'd do it. Great. I think we need to um, find a, a new hot pot place. I think so. I think next time you're in New York... We're going to do hot pot and I'm going to eat spinal cord. Well, Kinds of Kings, that all six of us are going to be in New York on the 15th and the 17th of October. So Susanna will be here and I think that might be the time. Speaking of, I mean, so Kinds of Kings, I wanted to talk about that because that's another project that is really taking off. And it's been really exciting to to follow along on Facebook and see all the things that you guys are doing. And I know that you have the event uh, spectrum that you're referring to. So could you tell us a little bit about how Kinds of Kings came about? Yeah, well, we've sort of come at it completely backwards. So basically, Shelley Washington, who is one of my best friends and an amazing composer, she and I just wanted to have a collective um, because, you know, we've spent so much time on Messenger with each other talking about the hilarious and ridiculous and sexist things that happened to us <laughs> in the course of, you know, a day. And mm-hmm. we wanted to have, we wanted to share that with um, Susanna and Maria Kautzani, who we also um, went to NYU with. And so we were kind of, we talked about it for a long time about having a composer collective. And then I finally just thought, you know, like, 
even if we don't have anything lined up, if we have no idea what we're doing, let's just, I'm going to ask the people who I, who I'm really like enjoying hanging out with and whose music is really kind of speaking to me and Mm. we'll band together and, you know, maybe nothing will happen and maybe something will happen and either way it'll be fun. So, um, I met, Fanola Merivale, who's an Irish composer studying up at Columbia at the moment. We got talking and became friends within about 10 minutes. Um, and she's hilarious and, and writes really interesting, um, very different stuff to me, which is, which I, you know, it's really fun when you find a composer whose work that you love, who writes um, with a very different vocabulary. And then the final composer, um, Emma O'Halloran, I met her when I moved out to Princeton. So she's in her sixth year. So it felt like asking, you know, five women out on a date all at once. And I just <laughs> messaged them all. I was like, this is this is a thing we're starting kind of. Yeah, so for some reason, I think in addition to us all being women, we we got a bunch of people asking to work with us and do collaborations straight away. We have um, some really exciting concerts coming up. We have one at Spectrum with Desdemona, um, which is a collective, New York-based collective, um, who will be in string quartet form um, on October 17th. On Monday, October the 15th at Metropolis Ensemble Space. And then... In November, we are having pieces, small sort of chamber works played by Metropolis Ensemble performers at their space. And then in December, we're working with Zaffa Collective in Chicago. And then all the way forward in April next year, we are um, having pieces performed by St. Louis Symphony Orchestra members as part of their Pulitzer series, which is their, you know, chamber music series. It's it's blowing me away still. I, I still can't, you know, kind mm. of fathom that this all came about within um, less than a year, I would say. The six of us have never actually all been in the same room before, so it's all kind of come together virtually and uh, we get to be in the same space for the first time <laughs> in October, which will be really exciting. Oh, that's great. So basically what you're saying is you're not going to be sleeping for the next like year and a half. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I also have my glass of rosé and I would rather that it was this way than the other way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great problem to have. Yeah, right. And, and back to your early comment about how in, in the... Western world, it you know, it's really hard to completely comprehend the type of female oppression that ha- happens elsewhere. And I, I feel like the piece and what you're trying to, you know, what you're doing with Kinds of Kings has this very much liberating feeling to it. And that it's, and I imagine, I mean, it's a big reason too why it, both the piece is so successful and the, the group is so successful because you have not only talented uh, individuals involved with it, but it's also has a very powerful message behind it as well. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we never planned with Kinds of Kings for it to be an all-female collective necessarily. We just wanted to, you know, pick people who were interested in um, the same conversations and um, who came from different musical backgrounds and different um, different backgrounds entirely. You know, we're all from different places mm. and have grown up with different educations, Um but we've come together to around the same 
ideas of, you know, trying to make this kind of music that we do more inclusive um, so mm-hmm. that when we we have kids and young people at um, concerts or if they listen to our stuff, they, they see us and think, you know, composing is a real job that I could do. It's strange that in, in 2018 in most of the educational institutes that teach composition, it's still white men and mostly straight white men who are... Yeah getting these graduate positions and then the professorships um, and getting the commissions. So we're yeah. trying to make, you know, music and our field reflect the world a bit more. It's exciting to see this new environment cropping up where it's, we're seeing a lot more representation and a lot more attention that's frankly been due forever <laughs> to, you know, females and um, people of color and a lot of other um, underrepresented individuals, especially in the art community, especially in a community that's typically known to represent, you know, being fairly open and all, you know, all encompassing. And I think it's very strange that it's such a a feel that it's still, like you're saying, still an issue where you go into a music history class and it's all just, it's like, "Mm, I feel like a lot of other people were writing music. I don't think it was just (laughs) these guys. That's um, right, but so many people believe that the canon is music history and that there weren't women writing and there weren't people in other countries writing music outside of, you know, Germany and Austria and mm-hmm. maybe France. It it breaks my heart that so much music and art and actually mathematical knowledge and scientific knowledge has been erased because it was created or conceived of by women and by not you know people outside Europe or North America later something like 90 96% of orchestral commissions go to men like if it's skewed so strongly in one direction you are you're losing something as a culture sometimes the trouble is it it especially something that's like a global problem it feels like you know what what do you do? But I think that you're absolutely right that saying that it's really up to the individuals because if every individual, you know, was able to help make a change that it would happen, you know, in an instant, but it's just kind of getting that momentum going and it, it starts, it starts on the very personal level. And, and it's I getting rid it's, of some of those bad actors who, you know, are gatekeepers to so many people. I was talking recently to a professor of composition and I made a bit of a Twitter storm when I, we were talking about all male ensembles and how prevalent they are and why that, why that might be. Um, in fact, he was asking uh, how I felt about having my string quartet erasure, which is about the erasure of women from history, um, mm-hmm. how I felt about having it played by the Jack Quartet and I said, actually, I really love it, you know, because it's not just for women to stand up for women. It's it's It was really cool having this all-male quartet talk about – there's a spoken word part to the piece where they, they say my mother's name, um, the astronaut's name, the scientist's name, the composer's name, to remember all these erased women. But it sort of – the conversation turned when um, I said, you know – when when they replaced two of their members, they replaced them with two more guys. <laughs> and he said mm-hmm. to me, I don't think there are any string players, uh, female string players playing at that level. 
And that is why they Wait, got two more guys. And this this professor is a professor of, of composition in a prestigious institution. This kind of thinking actually isn't that out of the norm. When you look at the statistics about who gets to be in these top groups and who gets commissioned by them. Yeah, and I feel like especially at a younger age when you are looking up to people that you consider successful, it's a very impressionable time. So it's a huge problem. I'm, well, I'm excited that we have people like you that are going to be, you know, helping change this. Well, I'm excited we have people like you who's, who create these opportunities. And I still remember, um, you know, you invited me to be a part of Live 45. You, yeah. You've done a lot of hard work for very little or no pay. Wait, there's no money in the arts? Is that what you're, you're saying? Uh, there is. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited to see what, what's coming up. And I the, I did want to ask, how how is it how is it going at Princeton? It's it's amazing. It, it's such a um, strange and incredible thing to wake up every day, you know, and realize that I'm here. I grew up sort of lower um, middle class, whatever we call that now, in um, a small city in New Zealand, and there was some cultural life, but but not a lot and nothing compared to what we have in the northeast of the States. Playing the violin and playing in youth orchestras and things. Um, but there, it was a a weird thing to do. You know, no one, it was really uncool, really unfashionable to play classical music. I went through my undergrad and I had one amazing professor, John Pasathis, who has been a mentor from that time on. Um, I still go home and have beers with him and for a long time after my undergrad I stopped composing um, partly because of economics like I I had to pay rent and Mm -hmm. um, so I worked in jobs and I moved overseas and taught English and then I worked in banks just before the financial crisis Um, and I worked in arts administration for a long time advocating for other artists and it was always kind of bittersweet because I loved doing that job and I loved talking about you know work that I really believed in but I I still you know somewhere inside wanted to be doing art myself and um, it took a very long time for me to regain confidence because my undergrad was pretty um they, they were not so into music that had a time signature or pulse or tonal center. Mm-hmm. And I turned myself inside out trying to, to write music that would have fitted in, fitted in, in um, European moder- modernism. When I finally applied to go to NYU, um, for me it was like if I don't get into a school, into a master's program in the States... I will take that as my closure and I will move on with my life and choose a different path because it's just torture to want to be a composer and to write these pieces that no one will ever hear. I just need to, you know, stop and, and give myself um, an ending. This is the question I feel like it's asked a lot, but what, what is next? What is, what do you, or where do you want to see your music going? I've never been good at predicting what's going to happen in my life. You know, like if you'd asked me a few years ago where I was going to be, I never would have said out here living in Princeton. What I hope is and dream is that I can 
be a professional composer full time for as long as I can trick people into, you know, giving me money and, and opportunities <laughs> to do it. That's what composing is all about, yeah, tricking right? people into giving you money so you can just keep writing. You're, you're definitely your outlook and your approach to it is going to, you know, take you places. What are and, your plans? Uh, what are you going to do in the next five oh God, years, what Michael? I, what am I doing? Oh, God, my five-year plan? Where are you going to be in five uh, years? Oh, I don't know. Probably still sitting here. Um, keep trucking along, which is a very non-specific way of saying I have no idea either. <laughs> I'll see you there. Oh, yeah. We'll get hot pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Gemma for taking time out to come and talk with us today. I mean, this is uh, really do appreciate it. And I think that you've covered a lot of amazing topics and I think that I'm excited to share this with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you for some hot pot soon. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> then we can really spill the tea. <laughs> yeah, we can talk the real business. Thanks again to Gemma for sitting down and talking with me. If you want to find out more about her and her work, you can check her out at GemmaPeacock.com. There are two great opportunities to catch her and her collective kinds of kings this October. On the 15th, her piece Erasure will be programmed and will be featured at Metropolis in Manhattan. On the 17th, truck on over to Brooklyn and you can catch the same piece with kinds of kings at Spectrum. Her piece Waves Plus Lines is going to be released as an album on November 30th. For more information, you can find links to these events on our social media pages. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more from music. But for now, here's a snippet from Waves Plus Lines.
That's the cat. Did you, you hear sure? it? I, it's some kind of four-legged fast beast. Could be a dog. It's or not a baby. A raccoon. Well, it's definitely well, a baby. It's not a baby. If it's a baby, we have things. The next forty years are going <laughs> to be m- terrifying. The Gorgon, Demogorgon. Yeah, the Demogorgon. Yeah. You seen the Omen? That's but what, the puppy. If that's a baby, that's what's going to happen. Oh, that movie is scary. The Omen. So is Rosemary's Baby. Oh my God, that movie is. Oh yeah. I just watched it a couple years ago for the first time. What a segue. We're talking about movies. Movies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm recording. Oh, oops. Yeah. I saw The Exorcist a couple of years ago. I don't think those movies are scary. I think they're boring. See, I saw The Exorcist when I was 10. And let me inform you, it is scary. And it will ruin your life for six months. There's a new Netflix documentary from the same director filming a real exorcism. Oh, no. Yeah. No. I won't. Nope. I'm Too out. Much. See, that would be a fun film score live. To ha- watch a live exorcism. No. <laughs> With, yeah, let's New exercise York the running. New York Phil of all of its bad energy. <laughs> <laughs> should uh, should we bring us into this since we went to the thing? Mm-hmm. It's that time of year again, that most most blessed season when all the orchestras in the land do film scores. They do music along the picture. And this year, the New York Phil did 2001 Space Odyssey, and they did There Will Be Blood. Michael and mm. I are poor and slow on the uptake, so we went to see There Will Be Blood. Yeah. 2001 was sold out. Oh, and I also haven't seen it. So I feel like I right. I want to see it first with the actual soundtrack. That's a good point. The night that we went, I think there were a lot of people who hadn't seen There Will Be Blood. I think that's because very accurate. there was the significant portion of the audience who <clears throat> during some of the really like the really intense parts of the movie were laughing. Like, yeah. They were watching Daniel Day-Lewis go, I abandoned my child. And they were like, <laughs> there was this when you t- <laughs> making me laugh. When you <laughs> <laughs> but it was like the crazier and more like murderous he got, the audience just started like chuckling. And I didn't know if it, what the deal was. Well, can we put a pin on that? Cause I, I, th- yeah. I think that's a great point of discussion that I think we can get into because I think there's probably several reasons. That's ginger. It's our producer, ginger. <laughs> that's uh, our unpaid intern. Yeah. <laughs> ginger. Ginger. As Spencer said. Anyway. Should we, should we, you know, should we mention just a brief overview of what, what it is, like what they do, in case oh, people that haven't gone to something, like, that's should, a I, good, should that's I, a good do you want idea. me to say something? Like, yeah, yeah, go for it. So basically, the general idea of, of these type of events is an orchestra will do a screening of a film, and they have, they've acquired the version of the film that has removed the soundtrack, and they will play the score live to the picture, uh, which is, I think, really, really neat in a very interesting way to experience it. However, this was the first time I had gone to it personally and I had a lot of mixed feelings, but overall I thought it was a great experience. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Cause you've got this giant silver screen, kind of like old school size movie screen. Cause it takes up the whole concert stage mm-hmm. and they're projecting from the back of the house in this, you know, 3000 seat place. We went to it, David Geffen in Lincoln center and then there's just this 
sea of musicians sitting right underneath and they've got like cool lighting and stuff going on. So what was your, I've gone to these in the past. What was your first impression of these? I think my first impression was positive that I really liked it throughout the evening when I was having different experiences throughout it or, or realizing something as we were going. I think right away what really struck me was the orchestra was very sensitive to the fact that they were acting as the soundtrack and were mm-hmm. amplifying the film. I was actually surprised at how well it was balanced, meaning the, really? the film was loud. I thought because you had to balance it with an orchestra that you almost kind of had to have it be a little bit louder. I guess that's fair. I mean, so the way There Will Be Blood opens is with these super soft string clusters and they're not even like bowing with the right part of the bow. I think they're playing composer oh. term. They're playing coleño bowing, oh. which means that they're just scraping the, the wood of the bow on the strings. And so it's this really creepy, quiet sound. And then the first thing you see is Daniel day Lewis, just like beating the shit out of some silver in a mine. Oh yeah. So it's like this, he's going to town. You hear this super hushed thing. And then all of a sudden you get, uh, like this, that is, yeah. the whole audience kind of flinched and I was like okay that's too much <laughs> and it was Wait, but it actually it did end up balancing okay I guess but the music was a little quiet especially if you're there yeah. to hear the soundtrack <clears throat> I felt like maybe they could have up balanced it mm, that's know. fair that's fair but that's just me one thing that was a little for me just we're, we'll, we won't spend the whole time talking about this specific mm. performance but just an odd choice I felt was uh there's this thing in There Will Be Blood, if you haven't seen it, uh, where they use the Brahm, part of the Brahms Violin Concerto. It's this like high energy kind of celebratory bit of music. And it happens twice. It happens once in the middle and once at the very end uh, in kind of a very different contexts, to say the least. Mm-hmm. No spoilers. One's very positive, one's very negative. And the one that happens in the middle of the movie, they brought out... The, the film score is going along underneath the film and the orchestra is playing along. And then they bring out a soloist in the middle of all this. She just kind of walks out and then she's standing at the front of the stage with a spotlight on her. <laughs> and then she just starts playing. But again, as we said before, it's quieter. So it's not that loud compared to the movie. So it's like there's people talking over her, but she's still standing dead center front of the stage playing her heart out. But you can't hear much of what she's playing. It's yeah, just kind of like, yeah. what? It what? was a really interesting seemed, dynamic. This is sounds really nitpicky, but it made a huge difference. Was instead of just having one of the players close to the front of the stage play this solo violin part like along with everybody, they, br- they made this it. big spectacle of someone coming out, standing at the front of the stage in a gown and like playing, but you couldn't really hear. And it was yeah. so, That's st- dumb. so dumb. That's dumb. And she did a pretty good job yeah. with it. I mean, it sounded... To be frank, a little phoned in for, the, but the Brahms is hard as hell. That's a really tough piece, but still. Well, that actually still, yeah, yeah. It's a great segue. I'm sorry, for I mean, might cut that out. No offense. No, we're being harsh critics. Well, it, it, <coughs> it depends on who who it was. I mean, do you know who? I who for, it was? I forget her we name. But she's up, a, but she's a core film member. Yeah. That's an actually interesting segue to the the other end of the spectrum with me. That while I was watching the movie, I, I noticed that I've seen the movie before I went to watch it. And there was something about watching it with a live soundtrack that made the movie almost seem live itself, which in turn made me extremely anxious. I'm not going to give anything away, but the first 
10 minutes of the movie, I was on the edge of my seat because I knew what happens. But for some reason, having the live performance combined with it made the experience new in a very, in a way that I didn't expect. Well, it is sort of counter to the whole idea of film scores, which, which are, which is music that's supposed to subliminally influence your emotion, but you're not, you're not supposed to feel it or you're, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to hear it. I mean, they say the, the -hmm. only time you hear a film score is if it's really, really good or, or really, really bad. I think that's why, uh, this movie and 2001, well, I'll get to that in a second. I think that's why it's such a good choice for this is that the opening to There Will Be Blood would just kind of seem like an establishment montage. But the score, kind of like the title of the movie, just puts a little seed in your brain of I'm about to see something horrible. And it's really mm-hmm. cool because it just could be someone establishing themselves as a, as a minor. And then, but the whole time, because of that music, you're mm-hmm. going, what the <laughs> fuck am I about to see happen to poor Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> and that little baby? And then, and it's so, it's like you're watching the last 30 minutes <laughs> yeah, of The Shining, but you're watching just some guy with a mustache. Like, like it gives you so much, so much anxiety that opening. That's what, mm-hmm. when I, when I rewatch it, I like to, I like to, Play it with. Um, I like to play. Take the A train over it. <laughs> it makes me feel better. <laughs> Wait. So you basically like alter the film's soundtrack to to yeah, affect the yeah, experience. Yeah. Why it's take too, the A train? It's too tense. No, it just you know feels yeah. good. Oh, Ma- it makes yeah. me feel like he's you know he's gonna just something good Moving is gonna happen. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna <laughs> strike oil and then. Happy ending. Uh, the end of the movie. Let's kick the kick the movie off with a happy ending. It's Ken Burns yeah. jazz meets uh, <clears throat> oil. That's right. <laughs> Ken Burns jazz was weird. They talked so much about Vietnam for every episode. <laughs> what does what? I didn't what realize. does LBJ sending extra troops to Vietnam have to do with the blue scale? <laughs> What's, Ostensibly wait, nothing, wait, what's the, but actually everything. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't realize Charlie Parker played such a big role in Hanoi. <laughs> <laughs> now, you see, that would be a fun film score live project for an orchestra is to do an entire Ken Burns documentary series of underscore. <laughs> It'd be like going to see Einstein on the beach. You just sit there for 17 hours and then eventually it ends. Well, that would be <laughs> that would be really long. Well. But I was looking up where you actually get the film scores. And so you've been to these sketchy places on the internet too. <laughs> Wait, when you well, say I film had score, before. Well, do the, you mean like the the, the score? Yeah, the whole and the, score? And the, the whole the whole package, right? Yeah, the whole the, the whole kit that you need to like do this. Mm. Um, and there are a few. I, but one of them is I don't know where where uh, the film the Phil got their kits, but one of them is Disney concerts. They have some pretty awesome movies that the Phil maybe should be doing. One is um, Ed Wood. They could do Ed <laughs> Wait, Wood this, and are you the, the this du- up? no, I'm, I'm not. Ed Wood. Freddie got um, fingered. The the duration for Ed Wood. <laughs> Apparently, like, I'm just going to assume this isn't a mistake. It's five hours long. Um, Wait, are you, are you making no, do there like are the some real DVD gems. extras? 
That's right. It's it's the film and then the director's <laughs> cut, and you have to sit through both. Um, and you have to watch Yap Von Zweden actually <laughs> accidentally navigate to the special features menu <laughs> twice through. So you're like halfway through, you're like, wait, we already watched the making of. Oh, hang on, let's go back. That's oh. right. Yeah. You see him getting frustrated with it, and like one of the, one of the AAA batteries is going to die, and, <laughs> and that's a whole ten minutes. There's they Disney concerts also has. Freaky Friday. Oh yeah. Um, Which version? Oh, is this the oh the Lindsay Lohan version? No. The good version. I like that they one. Have, it's got a uh, Jamie Lee Curtis Jamie in Lee it. Curtis. Yeah. Uh, Iron Man. The Joy Luck Club. They made that, a movie of the Joy Luck Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. you can mm-hmm. even I thought that was perform just a novel. My mom live. It's a novel. It's also. Um, Little Mermaid. Mary oh, Poppins. That'd be, oh, that'd be good Monsters too. Inc. Mulan. I'd go uh, to all of these. Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck. Oh, uh, Ben Affleck. <laughs> and the real find, uh, Signs, Mel Gibson. I love that Okay, score, can we talk actually. about it, though? Sometimes I'm writing some music, and I'll hit some like weird pair of notes, and I'll be like, that sounds great. And I'll go, nope, that's Signs. It's already <laughs> Signs. <laughs> I, but it does happen, where I'm just like, Fuck, whoever mm. wrote that score, he Ruined just it he, for he has like these sets of like four notes that repeat for the entire two hour duration of the movie. So they dig their way into your brain so deep that if you ever play those intervals mm. together, you go like, isn't that that movie with the Brazilian alien who walks by that the, the kid's movie. birthday party? Was the alien Brazilian? Uh, I know I screwed it up. No, I think <laughs> it, it was in Brazil though. With that alien who walks by no, the kids' party. Oh, in but Brazil. the alien wasn't the, Brazilian. The, but the, the, no, the alien, no, the was, alien Brazilian. was Brazilian. Remember the whole time the alien was trying to teach everyone about Bossa Nova. Oh yeah, I must have missed that part. I don't know where to go after that. Um, some of the companies who make these like packages for orchestras to perform this stuff are weird. Like they seem like a company from the early '90s who just found out about the internet. I mean, these are probably very reputable companies who just don't need to use the internet for their deal making and whatnot that much. But there's one called Movies in Concert dot Netherlands. Not that that's funny. It's just interesting. There's one uh, Film Concerts Live and Soundtracks Live. These are the three biggest <laughs> ones I could find. I don't really. I did. I couldn't find stats on who they're providing for except for i believe film concerts live because they have a big list but what's interesting is when you see the packages they offer you see these specific concerts popping up kind of in succession through different orchestras like there's a specific one called superheroes and it has an exclamation point which is why i'm saying (laughs) it like that uh and it's really been on several orchestras advertised as superheroes and it's it's not uh, what we've been talking about quite, but they're kind of, it's film music uh, and excerpts of the scores from them just packaged oh. together as a set of pieces that you can play as an orchestra, which is kind of interesting. That is like, interesting. That one in particular has been done by Buffalo and Columbus, and there's another one, and I can't remember who it was, uh, and a few other orchestras around the country. Uh, but they kind of, it kind of circles its way through like superheroes in particular. And then there's also like specific movies kind of make the rounds in an interesting way. Like nightmare before Christmas was done live to picture by Cleveland. I would go uh, last year, any day. And then New Jersey symphony is doing it this year. 
Oh, really? Uh, actually, and when? shout out to New Jersey Symphony. Awesome orchestra. Go see it. It's in December. I will do Yeah, that. lots of fun. It seems like it might be because these companies who prepare the score and the parts and the film without the soundtrack, along with the other tools you need, when new ones come out, they kind of like make the rounds around the country. It's kind of something I didn't expect to find out, but it's mm-hmm. like La La Land got played in 2017 by Dallas, and then it's getting played next spring in San Francisco. It's just similar, like as movies get prepared and are able to be released in this way, they're getting premiered by orchestras. It's like watching a trend form in real time because not many of these orchestras started these programs before like 2013, 2014. So it's really recent. Earliest one I could find, the New York Phil started the Art of the Score program. It was a tribute to John Williams for a benefit concert in 2004. And then a few years later, they said, let's bring it back. And they kind of made it into live to picture. And there's just all these movies that people are doing. It, it's very cool to see something, a new format take off in real time. It's always cool to see a broad uh, sweep of pandering. <laughs> well, I think we know where mm-hmm. Spencer stands on this one. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's a fun, I mean, I think it's a fun thing. For but. the most part, I agree. I think for the most part, it's a really fun way to bring new people in. And then, of course, like everything, depending on the film, occasionally you get something that really benefits from it. I heard the 2001 Space Odyssey at the New York Phil is like a once in a lifetime experience. No. For anyone who hasn't seen 2001, the score to that movie is it's entirely pre-existing music. And most of it's from the last 50 to 60 years of classical music. So it's really out there, cool stuff. Well, didn't that help make... um, Ligeti? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, Kubrick felt that he could just use the music without getting permission or licensing from Ligeti. And they basically hated each other right afterwards, understandably. There was a lawsuit, right? There was a lawsuit. And then somehow it got resolved so well that they became best friends and Ligeti, I think, spoke at Kubrick's funeral. Oh, that's how most uh, yeah, legal... Mo- most arbitration <laughs> ends with best friends at the end. Yeah. What's even cooler, originally Wait, Kubrick yeah. hired Alex North to do the score for 2001. Peter North's brother. Yes. Who's Peter North? Porn star. Wait, really? Yeah, I think so, right? Is it really his brother? Yeah. I cannot tell when Spencer is being serious. <laughs> it's isn't that a, isn't it's that a, probably not his brother. Probably but is Peter like North a real porn star? I think that's a porn Well, that's probably a made-up name then. I would think so. Anyway, <laughs> Kubrick hired this porn star named Alex North. <laughs> Kubrick hired this composer named Alex North to do the score for 2001. He did the score for Spartacus. Mm. Um, and he, Alex North scored and recorded the entire thing. And then the movie was finished up. Premiere time came around. Alex North attended the premiere as one of the creators of this film and sat in his seat only to discover that Kubrick had replaced all the music without telling him. That's that's a pretty dick that's move. That's cold as ice. I love Kubrick, but he was kind of a handful <laughs> from what I've <laughs> But I would have still stayed and watched it. I mean, it's a great movie. I, I don't know. I'm curious whether he stayed. I'm interested to know. So, Spencer, I know you didn't see this with... Will and I, but... But what do I think about it? Well, no. <laughs> yeah, tell us everything. You, have you been to a live 
score event like that before? No. Um, but I'm, I'm, I've seen a lot of talkies. <laughs> and <laughs> when was the last time you went to the Nickelodeon? I don't go as much as I used to with these prices. Yeah. <laughs> 35 cents a picture. They don't even include the news. Yeah. I want the footage from our, our buddies across the pond. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I have really strong memories of my, of my grandpa saying, you know, when I was a kid, movies were a nickel, and you got a double feature and a cartoon. You that's a six hour commitment. And you used to go get all of those things and you had money for French fries and a Coke <laughs> afterwards. And a mortgage. And, and a, a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> and millennials are lazy. Right. Yeah. That was from my paper route. So so as someone who has not experienced this, I'm curious to know what your idea of what it is without having experienced it. Or what do, you, what do you think it would be like? Try to not be a composer and just be like a fucking plebeian. Plebeian? Yeah. Judge? Plebeian. Thank you. Plebeian. Plebeian? Plebeian? I don't know. She's got more degrees than us. When I went to Nick and Tony's upstairs music college <laughs> of 8th Street. <laughs> I can't. This guy's... <laughs> Where are we going? <laughs> this is great. I don't know. I was thinking about this so so much on the train. I think it's I think it's a a cool idea. I mean, it's a it's a weird thing that you would go really to focus on the on the score, and I think that can only work with a few movies with really distinct scores because fundamentally, film scores are the accompaniment. So unless you're John Williams. Unless you're unless you're John Williams, mm-hmm. but but even then the you're dinosaurs build, support you're right under Mark Hamill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, see that that actually kind of brings it back to the the thought that I had that it, I was worried to go see two thousand and one because I've never seen it, and I figured I'd be paying too much attention to the performance and not the movie. I'm not saying you can't get that if you've not seen the movie, but I just feel like I appreciated going in to see There Will Be Blood having already seen it. Oh right, I think I think you should go to these having seen the movie, and I mean, kind of similar. You don't necessarily these days go to a concert having never heard the music. I mean, God bless those awesome folks who are just like I don't know who the shit block is, but I'm going. But got you know, good yeah, for them. No, but you know, amazing, most people ama- check people. it out beforehand and they go, "Oh, I know, I like this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go," which is. Pretty cool. But that's why they do mostly really popular films and and ones that have been noted for their music. Like they mm-hmm. do Home Alone, Harry Potter. They do, okay, they do all of John Williams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Next year, they're going to do all the Boss Baby movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't wait. Movies. And, put, and the New York film's going to have that? Alec Baldwin play his part live. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm really bummed we didn't see the night, we weren't there the night that he was talking. Yeah, apparently been he cool. gave a talk. Or, or he moderated a talk. Yeah. I wonder if it's for his <laughs> podcast, our direct competition. Yeah. Oh, I know. We're, we're, we're neck and neck with... <laughs> us, and, us and here's the thing. He's got thing in the name too. Shit. Oh, he's going to hear from uh, <laughs> He took that from lawyer. us though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's actually going back to the, the comment you made about the laughing kind of ties in with the experience of having seen the movie and not having seen the movie. 
I think there are a couple reasons for why that was happening. I think one, like you said, a lot of people didn't see it. So I don't know if they knew what type of movie it really was. Two, I think in general, sometimes when you have a large group of people and there's an uncomfortable part of a movie that could possibly be taken in a comedic way. It only takes like one person to laugh before everyone takes it as a cue to, to say, Oh, that's actually supposed to be funny right. and laugh to kind of relieve the tension or the, you know, one right. person going, huh. and Oh yeah. 50 people going huh, out of 200 or mm-hmm. 2000. It sounds it's contagious. Like a big, yeah. Ah. But, but you also know. Daniel day Lewis in that role is always on the cusp and, I mean, true. It's over yeah, the top, no matter it's, what. Yeah, it's it's overwrought, and then you know the you drink my milkshake line. What did turn? I can't I mean, believe what was that first actually time my, come up my favorite moment of this experience, and that it's not to uh, put down the Phil's performance because they did a really good job with with playing this piece. After the milkshake part, everybody that line is very funny. It's just a funny line before the mm-hmm. end where he he makes kind of an analogy to his enemy. Here comes my Daniel Day-Lewis. Who's, I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. And he goes. So good. Thank you. We actually had Daniel Day-Lewis come into the studio just, just to record that, that He's line. in here. We're good friends. <laughs> okay, bye, Dan. Bye. He doesn't say goodbye. Enjoy your next PTA he re- film. He refused to take off his shoes. Yeah. He made those shoes himself <laughs> after studying in Italy for six years. Uh, anyway, the best part was... When he says, uh, I drink your milkshake, every people went nuts because mm-hmm. it is very funny. And then like 30 seconds later, the end of the movie happens. And let's just say there's kind of like three progressive hits in a row of action that happened. And the first thing that happens, people kind of went like, huh. And then the second time it happened, you instantly got, huh. oh, like this whole wave of people. You literally just heard like, oh. In the audience, like five hundred people realized that none of this movie was supposed yeah, to be I funny. Yeah, I think that was the all moment. At once, <laughs> like, so when he was beating the priest to death. Yeah, I was trying to spoiler. We're gonna have to cut well, that I, out. When did that movie come? That's out? That's very true. No, no, we're pat- let's play. Guess when this movie came out? No, there's a statue. Michael, guess when this came a... out? <laughs> guess how many years ago it came? Two thousand and no, just guess how many years? Six. 10. 11 verging on 12. Shut 11. Up. Okay, so the statute of limitation is 10 years. So if you haven't seen it, turns out he was Lincoln the whole time. <laughs> and then he killed a priest with a bowling pin. <laughs> Free this, bitch. Free this, bitch. That's my I don't even know what that is from. Or what it's from. No, Lincoln had a very high timbre. I thought I had a high timbre there. This country. Oh, that's, something. that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My wife is Sarah Lee. No, who's the actress? Sarah Lee's the cake. Sarah Field. Sarah, Sally Field. <laughs> Sally. <laughs> Sarah Lee. <laughs> Sarah Lee. <laughs> I want dessert. So, so your comment earlier about the audience finally realizing like the, the actual tone of the movie. There are definitely scenes that I think were actually supposed to have like a little nudge of humor, maybe not laugh out loud funny, 
but it got amplified. And then when the scene takes a change, some people picked up on it that's not supposed to be funny anymore. Well, I think also some isn't didn't. that exactly the kind of event you'd take drugs for? I mean, you know, no comment. Well, ayahuasca would be a good choice. Yeah, you just vomit all over the lower tiers. Uh, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca? Yeah, no, it's, ayahuasca. It's like is a, that a microbrewery? No, oh, yeah. No. <laughs> anyway, so the humor thing, there's that element of people not knowing about the movie, but I think it also had a lot to do with the sheer size of the room. And no matter what, in a room of that size, you're not going to get the same um, silence that you get in a movie theater. Mm. It's actually even quieter than some recording studios. Oh, really? And it, it it's so that every single element of the sound can be controlled for the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what robbed There Will Be Blood of a little bit of its oomph. So all those silent parts of the movie, which There Will Be Blood has a lot, there's all these silences that build the tension like crazy. And then the score comes in and has this really crazy effect on you. So that might be something that orchestras should consider in the future is that the hall they're performing in. And if, I mean, if you're the New York fill and you have one hall and it's a big famous place where people know to go see you, you're kind of stuck, but other orchestras places, uh, groups that move around, throughout their state or whatever based on because they have a few different concert halls mm-hmm. that they like to move to like New Nomadic Jersey orchestras exactly well yeah. not exactly but vagrant ensembles yeah agricultural I think the New yeah. Jersey Symphony has three or four different halls that they play in just because it's kind of a big state so they like to make sure everyone can go see it but the ones that you they do the film concerts at perhaps should be ones that reflect the ambience of a movie theater mm-hmm. a little bit more I wonder if you. I wonder if there's a, a, a movie that features like a much smaller ensemble that actually could perform it in a movie theater. Well, the that there will be blood score is not for a ton of players. The string orchestra is like ten or twelve people. Like if it was a big enough movie theater and you had enough space in front, because sometimes they have a whole thing of space. Right, if you get there. an Alamo Draft yeah. House, you could. Ooh, yeah. Could do a killer. <laughs> there will be blood. <laughs> You could drink all the whiskey along with Daniel Day-Lewis. Are they all movie theaters? Yeah. Did they start as movie theaters? It's a movie theater franchise. It's like AMC, but less AMC. And more Alamo. More Alamo. I'm a Lois man man myself. (laughs) (laughs) I was raised on Regal Cinemagic. Oh, yeah. We had (laughs) Cinemark or something. You love the magic. Carmike Cinemas. We had Carmike Cinemas. Carmike what the sense. hell is? Car- I was in Ohio. Sense. Nothing makes sense. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious, kind of like how different versions of these things work for different people. Because we only saw one, and we had a pretty decent experience. But I wonder how well that product that's packaged that that's the the score, the parts, the film without the soundtrack, the streamer for the conductor, which the streamer is the thing that actually keeps the conductor on exactly the tempo of the movie itself how that all works when it moves around versus the first time it gets done. Well, when I, uh, when I saw freaky Friday at, <laughs> at Tanglewood, um, <laughs> what do you think would be a movie that would be amazing live with orchestra? Oh, does it have to be orchestra? Or just like live the, score, live score, like, um, uh, produced in any way you want. How about a best and a worst Birdman? I just want one drummer. 
to play the entire soundtrack Actually, live. Yeah. Let's put that on as a concert. That'd be amazing. That would be really cool. I'm okay. sorry. That can you do a funny one, and we're just gonna edit all that out <laughs> so we can actually do it. <laughs> Don John was a good score. I thought. I don't remember that score. It was. A, it's a very interesting score. It's very unique. It. It. It basically the score itself changes in tone with as the movie changes in tone. And I thought it was so effective because you can really tell when it really, it actually, you know, really made the shift a lot more apparent. I love the score for super bad. Oh yeah. I think a lot, a lot of that music was, was original, but it was, it was James Brown's band. Really? Oh, I didn't know that that. whole thing. Yeah. It was like Bootsy Collins was the bass player. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a What's something you never want to see scored live? Our producer is, is telling us something. Oh, whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> Our producer saying whiplash. whiplash. I've never seen that yet. Did whiplash you, have a good score? I hated that really? movie. Really? Hey. I fucking hated that movie. That's, I need to it's watch not it. how you learn how to box, but Rocky's a good movie. Come on. Oh. That's Stephen Colbert now. But what's his name then? <laughs> I like him. Oh, I don't like him. Oh, you the mean actor. J.K. Simmons? Yeah, I like oh, J.K. I Simmons. Thought you were, I thought you were advocating for that Well, kid. he I... didn't shine as brightly as he did in Spider-Man, but he was good. I will or tell you Juno. this. Or Jenna. I honestly can't think of one that I would say I would not want to see. I mean, I, you know what I mean? Like, like, like a movie that you, you'd want to see the movie but not the score or vice versa. No, like, for example, Troll 2. I would go and see that score played oh, live in a second. God, how we love how about the so room? there's very few things I would still see the room. The uh, room I, live. Like if someone actually made a score out of the like the hot shit pile that is yes. that MIDI mock-up well, there is. of Absolutely. A, yeah. a film soundtrack, it would be an, it would just make it even funnier. I, I would see that in a second. I think that's the only thing that could make that funnier is if you heard an orchestra trying to like not kill themselves while they played that. See, I don't, I don't, I don't get the room thing. I mean, I've, I've seen it, oh, it's so... and I saw the James Franco. I haven't seen one. that. I, the, to me, the room is, is just, it's just excruciating. Exactly, it's, it's like it's, yeah. so, it's so it's, bad. Yeah. It's just bad. It's so bad. It's bad. Are you a mystery science theater guy? <laughs> I've always liked them, but I never really got into. Them. I mean, oh, I saw, I love uh, it. that's why it's. I think you need a, a particular type of masochism to really enjoy. It's, that kind it's of, very specific type of. Yeah, I you, love it. You have to really feel how bad the movie is and find that funny yeah so i think it's the the takeaways it's a really fine line between something being a movie and the score being so bad but not bad enough or so good but not good enough that you wouldn't care to see it because there, i can't think of a movie that i would want to not see done live yeah just wouldn't care. it seems like outside the the golden circle of john williams films it does become a lot trickier to find films that are going to benefit from this, mm-hmm. but they're out there and it seems like people are doing a pretty good job of finding them and, uh, and they produce pretty fun results for audiences. I, I mean, we were sitting next to a couple of film buffs who were there because they love there will be blood. Michael and I were there because we love, were they wearing the berets? score? No. no, but they did have very thick glasses. Why would they wear uh, berets? I don't get it. They, they were like auteurs or something. And then there's there's folks who are just going because it's kind of a cool thing they haven't done before. And it kind of worked at different points for everybody except 
the laughing made mm-hmm. the film guys really angry, which is fun to watch. That's good. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it was a great, I, I liked it. It was a great experience. I can understand being frustrated by someone's enjoyment. <laughs> watch Don't be happy around me. I hate that. If anyone doesn't know, there's constantly a, a, a rain cloud above Spencer where it's just thundering while he does these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think with the film I score thing, you, you when you start to think of other movies you'd like to see and you start considering what films have really memorable scores and how much of the films have, you know, however much score, uh, you just... I think it becomes apparent pretty quickly the limitations of this genre. Obviously, some of it is there just to keep the story going and, and serve a function in the movie. But seeing it live is kind of a different way to look at a movie that you already know and you already love. It's going to get people to appreciate some music that they didn't before. And maybe they'll kind of be more willing to come back, especially you know, if they're doing something that's very music centric, if they're doing the red violin or they're doing uh, West side story or something like that, uh, then people might be kind of like, Oh, I didn't realize that I appreciated orchestra music already. That idea is soup is uh, you know, super available in um, wrong movie trailers or something where oh, oh, they I said love that those. like Home yeah. Alone as a shining. horror movie or, or yeah. Shining as a not comedy. the shining shining shining. Yes. <laughs> But it's the it's the editing too, but I mean it's a combination of the editing and the music. The music, in most cases, really tells you how to feel. Or if you watch those iconic Star Wars scenes with the sound off, or if you watch um, Game of Thrones with the always sunny music, <laughs> which <laughs> really changes we the at tone. This podcast <laughs> highly recommend. It's we've tried amazing. it and we endorse mm-hmm. it firmly. Also, the Sopranos intro is exactly the length of the Game of Thrones intro, and you can interchange them. They'll end at the exact same time. That it's is really funny. Pretty amazing. The Wire intro is the length of Mahler 6. <laughs> the, that with. the Wire intro syncs perfectly with Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got we to gotta wrap this. Mahler how do we, 6. How do we, how do we get out? How do we do this? Summation. I think it's summation that it is a great experience. It's a lot of fun. And I think it definitely did bring in an audience that might not typically have gone to listen to a symphony. And Daniel Day-Lewis kills a guy with a bowling pin. I still don't think we should spoil it. And frees the slaves. That's Uh, a different... No, that's the other one. (laughs) That's... That's There Will Be Blood, too. Django Unchained. (laughs) No, but I mean, it is something that should prove to people that... They like classical music more than they they realize, or they they have those sounds in their ears. I mean, for the people who think classical music is boring, but enjoy John Williams, or you know the music for the Avenger. I mean, all all exciting film music is orchestral. John Williams music is just every bar should have like um, have a footnote on it. Everything in those scores is something that's pulled from 300 years of other music. That's just as good. Not to say that he's, you know, stealing it, but he makes it his own. And it's really kind of a cool compendium of different sounds that you already know, which is pretty fun. Uh, So when you go see it live, it's even more 
present in in your experience. So it, it, overall, if you haven't seen one yet, it's definitely something to check out because I, I can't imagine anyone, even at a really dark movie like There Will Be Blood, could have anything but a good time. Movie's good. Music good. Mu- movies, music, double good. Double plus good. So well said. I don't think we can yeah. top that. Wow. Uh, that that's it this week for Adagio for Things. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Adagio for Things. We hope you enjoyed listening to us carry on about classical music. Uh, and a special thanks to Gemma Peacock for coming on the show and sharing so much with us. Again, more of her music coming up in just a second. Just a couple last bits of housekeeping first. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, we hope you'll subscribe uh, and maybe even leave us a little rating on the iTunes store or wherever you enjoy your podcast. It really helps us boost our visibility and get all this music to more people. If you want to check out any of the music that we mentioned in today's episode, including film music, pop music, everything, be sure to check out the Spotify playlist linked to this episode. Each episode of this show has a Spotify playlist paired with it that lists every piece of music that we mentioned. So if you're curious or just want to give it a listen because you like all the stuff we talk about, go check that out. The link can be found in our episode notes or on our website, loudboxnyc.org. That's all for this episode. For now, enjoy Gemma Peacock's saxophone quartet, Dwalm. <laughs>